Section number 24 of David and His Friends. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. David and His Friends, a series of revival sermons by Louis Albert Banks. THE KING'S SON COMING HOME FROM EXILE Yet doth he devise means that his banished be not expelled from him. Second Samuel, chapter 14, verse 14 David's favorite son, Absalom, had been in exile for three years. His own sins had driven him away into banishment. The heart of David was heavy, and he longed to see his son. Joab, who was at the head of the king's army and close in his confidence, perceived that David was pining for Absalom, and he sought to devise some plan which would cause David to decide to bring him home again. He finally decided on a very ingenious scheme. He went to Tekoa and secured the services of a very wise, brilliant woman, and arranged with her to assume the role of a mourner, and in that way obtain an audience with the king. And when she had had the chance to talk to David, she was to make her petition to him in the words which Joab himself suggested. The woman arrived at the court, and was ushered into the presence of David. She bowed with great reverence and cried, Help, O king. And David inquired, What aileth thee? The woman then proceeded to tell him this story. She said she was a widow woman, and the death of her husband had left her with two sons, and the two had got into a quarrel one day in the field. And in the struggle, one smote the other and slew him. And all her family had risen up and demanded that she should deliver up the boy that did the deed, that they might kill him in punishment for the life of his brother. The woman pleaded that if this boy were taken, it would be all she had, and the family name would be cut off. So she begged for her boy's life. David told her she might return home and set herself at rest, as he himself would take charge of the matter. As she continued to plead, he reassured her that not a hair on her son's head should be harmed. Having won her petition, the woman now begged that she might speak a word on another matter to the king. And he, no doubt wonderingly, granted her permission. And to David's great astonishment, she went straight home to his own heart and wanted to know why the king doth not fetch home again his banished and continued to philosophize in a most eloquent manner. For we must needs die, she said, and are as water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. Neither doth God respect any person, 
yet doth he devise means that his banished be not expelled from him. She continued in a very suave and diplomatic way to press the matter home at length on David's heart, until finally David wanted to know if Joab had not had a hand in this matter, and she was compelled to confess that he had. But it is not in human nature to be long angry with a man who seeks to devise it for us, a way to do the thing we want to do. So David did not hold the matter against Joab, but sent for the old warrior and said, Behold now, I have done this thing. Go, therefore, bring the young man Absalom again. Joab, in great delight, bowed low and thanked the king, and said, Today thy servant knoweth that I have found grace in thy sight, my lord, in that the king hath fulfilled the request of his servant. And so Joab went after Absalom. I have told this interesting little story that we may get at the suggestion already made for us by this wise woman who thus secured mercy for Absalom at the hand of David. She truly said that God does devise means by which he seeks to bring back those that are banished from him on account of their sins. There are several suggestions in our message which I wish very earnestly but very briefly to present. The first is that the plan of salvation began in God's own heart, full of love for us. The idea has been sometimes presented that God was only willing to save men after Christ had died for us and paid our debt. But the whole plan of salvation and the coming of Jesus Christ to die for us on the cross began in God's own heart. It is much more clearly so than is suggested in the story we are studying. True, the return of Absalom was made possible because of David's love for him and his longing to have him brought home. And though David had said nothing about it, Joab saw what the king's heart was suffering and discovered David's secret desire. He never would have acted as he did if he had not known that. So the bringing back of Absalom began in David's heart. But much more definitely, we are assured by Christ himself that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Christ came as God's messenger, the only being in the universe great enough and glorious enough to take upon himself our sinful nature and bear our sins on his own body, on the cross, and thus open up a way by which God might be just and yet pardon and justify those who are reconciled to him through Jesus Christ. The next suggestion I want to bring to your mind is that sin alone exiled us from the presence and favor of God. Absalom fled from his native land 
and from the presence of the king, his father, because he had not only sinned against David's love and fatherhood, but had broken the law of the land. It was his own deed which sent him into banishment. And so it is not because God has ceased to love us and long for our salvation that sin makes us unhappy, and that the sinner is the victim of remorse and fails to find peace. It is rather that man was made to find happiness in the presence of God and in the consciousness of harmony with him. As Absalom flew into exile because he knew there would be no peace for him at home because of his own acts, and after he came back, he found no pleasure because his heart was not in harmony with his father. So man, made to be the child of God, can find no real peace and no permanent joy in this world so long as he is conscious that his heart and life are wrong in God's sight. Many a man and woman have turned from one thing to another, seeking to satisfy their restless, banished souls who did not understand their own case and did not appreciate the truth of God's word that there is no rest to the wicked heart, that like the troubled sea, it will be forever casting up the mire and the clay of its own evil imaginations. The story is told of a man who once came to England from the continent, bringing with him to a famous physician a letter from the Emperor of Germany, which said, This man is a personal friend of mine, and we are afraid he is going to lose his reason. Do all you can for him. The doctor examined him and concluded that the difficulty was in something which weighed upon his mind and made it impossible for him to have peace. He asked the patient if he had lost any dear friend or any position of importance or what it was that depressed his spirit and robbed him of zest in life. Thus questioned, the young man finally said, no, but my father and my grandfather and myself were brought up infidels, and for the last two or three years this thought has been haunting me. Where shall I spend eternity? And the thought of it follows me day and night. The doctor said, you have come to the wrong physician, but I will tell you of a physician who can cure you. And then he told him of Christ and read to him the 53rd chapter of Isaiah and with wondering ears as though it were something new that he had never heard about before that young man born to wealth and power the friend of an emperor listened to those wonderful words surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows yet we did esteem him stricken smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. 
we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. The young man said, Doctor, do you believe that? The doctor told him he did, and knelt in prayer with him until he got a vision of the glorious Christ who came to heal sin-sick souls. And there, on his knees, in that physician's office, he found the great physician who made him every whit whole, and he went away with the question of where he was to spend eternity settled, for he had gained a title to an inheritance that is undefiled, and that fadeth not away. There is another point where I should like to lay the emphasis, and that is on the need of the sinner to be reconciled to God, and not God to the sinner. David's heart was broken over Absalom's sins, and he longed to save the young man from his folly and guilt and redeem him to a noble career. The one thing that never was accomplished in Absalom's case was his becoming, in his inmost heart, reconciled to David. That is what I want to press home on you tonight. God is reconciled to us through the death of Jesus, and all that remains for us to do is to accept it. Once when France and England were at war, a French vessel had gone off on a long whaling voyage. When they came back, the crew were short of water, and being near an English port, they wanted to get in. But they were afraid they would be taken prisoners if they went into that port. Some people in the port saw their signal of distress and sent word that they need not be afraid, that the war was over and peace had been declared. But they couldn't make those sailors believe it, and they didn't dare go into port, although they were out of water. At last, they made up their minds that they would better go in and surrender their cargo and their lives to their enemies than to perish at sea without water. And when they got in, they found out that what had been told them was true and that peace had been declared. There are many poor sinners who occupy the position of those sailors. They are thirsting for the water of life and know that they must perish without it, and yet they will not receive the good news of salvation, which offers them a free pardon for their sins and peace with God through the merits of Jesus Christ. I want to call your attention, in conclusion, to the fact, and it is a very sad and heartbreaking fact, that it is possible for the sinner to thwart God's love and make all the loving purpose of God and all the suffering and death of Jesus Christ of no effect so far as he is concerned. Absalom did just that with those who sought so earnestly to save him. He came back and turned against Joab, who had interceded for him and destroyed his fields. He cherished bitterness and treachery in his heart against David, his father, and finally openly rebelled against him and sought his life. Through it all, 
David did everything he could to save him. And there is nothing sadder in history than that day of the battle between the king's troops and the rebels that followed Absalom. When David watched and waited earnestly the result of the battle, and when they came and told him of the death of his son, David went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he cried, O oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would God I had died for thee, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. But all David's love could not save Absalom against his own folly and his own willful sins. At the very hour that David longed to press him to his heart, Absalom lay yonder in the woods under his heap of stones, buried as contemptuously as one might bury a dead dog because he would not respond to his father's love but sinned against it. And so I bring you this message tonight. God loves you. He seeks after you for your salvation. Jesus Christ was not only willing to die for you, but he did die for you. He drank your cup of sorrow to the very dregs. He was crowned with the thorns meant for you. It was your sins that helped to nail him to the cross. And if you're not saved, it will not be for lack of love in God, nor for lack of virtue in the blood shed on Calvary, nor for lack of warning in God's word and through his Holy Spirit. It can only be because you refuse. If you never before heard an invitation to come to Christ, I give it to you now. And you cannot stand in the day of judgment and plead that you did not have a fair chance. Don't wait, I beg you, for some overpowering wave of feeling that you cannot resist to sweep you off your feet into the kingdom. If you do, you may be sure it will never come. But if you will heed it, I am sure there is a breath from heaven tonight sufficient to show you the way thither. I have heard of two old miners in an English coal mine who once lost their way. Their lights went out, and among miles of dark tunnels traversing each other, they were in danger of losing their lives. After wandering in vain for a while, one of them said, let us sit perfectly quiet and see if we cannot feel which way the air is moving, because it always moves toward the shaft. There they sat for a long time, when all at once one of them felt a slight touch on his cheek, and he sprang to his feet and said, I felt it. They went in the direction in which the air was moving and reached the shaft. I am sure there is a breath from God tonight which touches some of your souls. If you will rise and follow it, it will lead you to the mercy seat. It will bring you to him who is the light of the world, and he himself has assured us that if we will follow him, 
we shall not walk in darkness. End of section 24. Read by Carrie Adams. Your book voice. Mesa, Arizona. August 22nd. 2021.